Welcome to the Women on Fire podcast. We're on a mission to help you have your best menopause and rest of your life. I'm your host, Jenna Moore. I'm an accredited integrative health and menopause coach, and I've studied nutritional awareness, women's hormones through a functional medicine lens, and explored various modalities, including breathwork, mindset, and positive psychology. Join me and my guests as we discuss how to navigate the natural life transition of menopause and growing older. From waistlines, waning libidos and what we are now we're over 40, we discuss it all. Women on Fire is sponsored by Menome, a New Zealand-based company by women for women. Menome specialises in scientifically validated all-natural supplements so you can experience freedom in menopause. Hi, Women on Fire. Today I have a delightful guest for you. Her name is Vinka Wong, or she's really known as Vinka, as that's her brand, really. And it's nice and simple. I love that name. She's a functional nutritionist whose mission is to help everyone look and feel their best. She uses modern and traditional diagnostic tools including blood work analysis, genetics, hormone testing and the symptoms of the body to diagnose root cause issues for the women and well men and women actually but we're talking about women right for the women that she works with. She's a self-professed science geek And she says she gets such a buzz out of helping her clients set and reach their health goals by learning how to implement realistic diet and lifestyle changes. I hope you enjoy this interview. Hi, Vinka. Hello. Welcome to Women on Fire. Thank you for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I'm so excited. (laughs) I love doing these. Oh, do you? Yeah, well, it's about talking, so, <laughs> so I'm in my element. And you love talking. Uh, yeah, I know. Which is what these interviews are made for, so we love that. I know, and my husband gets quite excited too because I get all my talk juice out now, and then by the time <laughs> I get home, he gets the TV in peace without having to pause it. It's so good. Uh, so you're a functional nutritionist. Yeah. So can we explain to yeah. our listeners exactly what, that means yeah those I know it's not something you hear every day but it's really just it's kind of code for geek but it's <laughs> so it really is as when you do functional nutrition it's about understanding the why so doing a lot of analytics to figure out why someone may not be feeling well whether that's kind of fatigue or immune conditions cancer and you know you look at all sorts of elements like blood testing genetics hormonal testing symptoms your body's giving you and kind of analyze all of that to kind of put together you know what we're going to do to help someone feel better so um you know, it's really just understanding the human body and its complexities in every way. So it keeps my brain firing at all times. <laughs> it's awesome. Yeah. yeah. It's pretty wonderful. Hey? I love yeah. the whole functional integrative Oh, gosh. Yeah. I mean, that's how I am as a health coach. And I think we've talked about it's great if you can find a medical practitioner yeah. who's functional as well. Because more about looking at root causes rather yeah. than writing out a script and I know and treating the symptom eh? and yeah. it's like, and I think that's when you look at the body it's never you know you may have an issue for example in the kidneys or thyroid but it may not have started there so it's actually understanding the whole body and where those issues are underlying and coming from so that, that root cause um, it's that medical investigator stuff I love digging in and finding out what's wrong and what's going on so it's cool 
Yeah, I know. It's really exciting. And I'm excited to talk to you today because I asked you if you would come on board mm -hmm. and talk about thyropause <laughs> or the link between thyroid and perimenopause because it really is a thing. It's yeah. so common and it's so important that women understand that. Yeah. And as it turned out, which is amazing, I mean, I knew you were in Perry anyway yeah but then it turned out that you'd had your own thyroid issues so i know it's something of something that you know a lot about right yeah so it's i've been very passionate about this topic and actually was you know when i was very early stages of studying and just had my children is kind of when all things um changed for me with, with my thyroid and it you know in a way it was kind of good because it actually sent me on a little adventure to learn a lot more about it and i'd been to the gp and told that my thyroid looked normal uh, but I was like but I'm, you know I was putting on like seven kilos when I looked at a fruit bowl and I was like there's something not quite right and I know my mum has um, Hashimoto's as well which is the autoimmune condition for uh, underactive thyroid hyperthyroidism so I knew the signs and I knew that something wasn't quite right so I went and started doing some more digging and yeah and have looked at so much to do with what we need to do to look after our thyroid how to really analyze it and see whether it's doing well um, and then looking at the key times in life when we have to be more, you know, more cautious with our thyroid and think about what's happening. And yeah, menopause is a big one. And a lot, and I think, you know, it goes unnoticed because, you know, some of the symptoms of an underactive thyroid are very similar to menopause. We start yeah. gaining weight, we lose our eyebrows, we have all these things happen, we feel a bit you know, lower in our mood, all these things that an underactive thyroid do. So it can kind of go unnoticed and a lot of women just go, oh, I've just been told it's menopause, go home. Um, and so I think, you know, getting more understanding, more testing and things around this time is so important. Um, yeah, it's so cool. Yeah, and um, because the standard test, because I say this all the time, yeah. I'm sounding like a bit of a broken record actually, but the standard <laughs> test measures TSH, thyroid stimulating hormone, but we need more than that, don't we? We need the free um, I know oh it's why I get like this is my bugbear I get like so passionate about this conversation but when we go and get our test done and if anyone's listening has had their test done what we usually get tested is the thyroid stimulating hormone TSH and that is the brain telling the thyroid what to do and you know like it can be sometimes like my children in the morning when I'm telling them to get ready for school and putting their shoes on they may not listen so just because the thyroid has been told what to do doesn't actually mean that it's actually listened to the brain so just measuring the thyroid stimulating hormone that the brain's sending the thyroid isn't enough to know whether your thyroid's actually uh, you know listened to that instruction and produced enough thyroid hormone so you know that's one part of the issue that we have here um and in many countries too not just new zealand um in Australia but our TSH is also a value that is worked out kind of based on averages of other people's bloods that you're comparing against and in New Zealand the ranges that we use for TSH are quite different to other countries so our TSH for example is normal if you've got a TSH ranging between 0.5 and 5 whereas in, in some other countries the TSH range can be 0.5 to 2.5 so we are quite different with where we will diagnose someone with hyperthyroidism. So a high TSH value is where you get diagnosed with hyperthyroidism. So the higher the TSH value, the slower your thyroid is. I kind of think of it like someone yelling at you, me and my kids, for example. Yeah. <laughs> um, you know, the louder that your thyroid's been yelled at from your brain, the slower your thyroid is. So in New Zealand, to get diagnosed with 
um, hypothyroidism and underactive Can I just ask you if this is the same for Australia because we work with Australia as well? Yes, it is. I don't actually know what the ranges they use, but it's pretty similar to New Zealand. Um, and so, and every lab is slightly different because we use the averages for that region. Um, and so this is, again, where the I guess the problem lies in that we average blood tests and compare it, you know, to that group. So if the group is all elevated, then that will become the normal range. Um, so, and you know, the normal range is usually about 95% of the population. So to be on the outside of a range, you have to be really extreme. And I don't want to go into the science, but it's like they use the good old bell curve. <laughs> um, but it's just, yeah, so to really we need to look at the health in terms of blood ranges for what you optimally need for that organ to function and for a thyroid. Personally, I think the TSH needs to be between 0.5 and 2. Um, and so that's where one of the things I think we're going so wrong with testing in Australia and New Zealand is that we're not using that first step in correct ranges and we're just using TSH and we're not actually testing the thyroid hormones. And that's, yeah, a real big miss. And so whenever I do a thyroid panel, it's actually four tests that I test. And so TSH is definitely really important and we test it. But then it's testing the two thyroid hormones, T4 and T3. Um, and looking at those ranges and seeing whether your body's produced enough of those thyroid hormones. And then the fourth test is so vital as well to know as your thyroid antibodies. And so thyroid antibodies are when the body has made antibodies that attack the thyroid. So the more antibodies you have, it's um, like, think of them like bullets that are firing at your thyroid. So the more thyroid antibodies you've got, the more holes you've got in your thyroid and so being shot at. So, you know, if your thyroid isn't producing enough thyroid hormone, you have to understand, you know, why is that happening? And if you've got thyroid antibodies, then the chances are that you've got the autoimmune conditions, either Hashimoto's or Gray's, and therefore that is actually an immune issue, not your thyroid. The thyroid's just the victim. And so when you're treating your thyroid, you have to look at your immune system in this point. Whereas if your thyroid hormones are low and you have no thyroid antibodies then it's actually well what can i do to support my thyroid now because that's actually where it's starting from um, so you have to know about the thyroid antibodies and 60 to 80 percent of you know the studies that look at women who have um, an underactive thyroid have Hashimoto's so i see so many people my clients come and see me who've been on thyroxine or synthroid the medication for an underactive thyroid and um, they have never had their thyroid antibodies tested and they don't feel any different when they're on the medication. They still feel like they're gaining weight and that wow. they're tired. Yeah. And the reason is they've still got the autoimmune condition that hasn't been put to bed yet. So, you know, it's so vital. And I, you know, we'll talk about more of what happens at menopause, but, you know, it's a great time to test <laughs> all of those. Yeah. Because it's, um, yeah, it really comes to the fore then, doesn't it? And because and the thyroid loves progesterone yeah. and one of the hallmarks of peri is lower peri uh, progesterone before anything happens to estrogen hey? yeah but can you explain um because there's the free t4 the free t3 and the reverse t3 yeah and this part i always get confused t4 is the inactive hormone and t3 convert it converts yes it yeah, <laughs> you're doing so well. I love that you know this. Um, so T4 is the kind of storage form. So 90% of what your thyroid makes is going to be made into T4. And it stores in our thyroid here. 
and it's ready to be converted when we're ready to use it. So then it, when it's ready to be used in our body, it converts into T3, which is the active form of thyroid hormone. And that's the, the little guy that goes swimming around your body and lands on cells and gets that actioning. And so what we want is a good production of T4, your storage form um, in your thyroid waiting for you to then get converted into T3. And when I look at a majority of my clients' bloods, what I see is that storage form of thyroid hormone is very, very low. Like I'd say on an average, you know, 90% of people have low T4. Um, it's amazing. So even though their TSH look great, when I look at their T4, it's really, really low. So most people aren't getting enough thyroid hormone. Um, and so T3 is that active form and reverse T3, he's a bit sneaky. Um, so reverse T3 is the mirror image of T3, but he's kind of the brakes for the thyroid. So, you know, it's kind of like if you were to drive your car with someone putting the accelerator on and there was no brakes, it'd be quite dangerous. So reverse T3 is designed to slow the thyroid down and, um, and is, is a good thing. But however, when we're under a lot of stress, I think everyone in their 40s, yeah. <laughs> um, or anyone, anytime actually, um, we make a lot of reverse T3. And reverse T3 will go and land on cells and block your T3, which is the active form going in. So, you know, when we're, when we're making stress hormones, cortisol, we make a lot of reverse T3. And so even if you've got heaps of T3 in your blood, this is where bloods don't always show you the whole picture with this, is that your T3 looks great in your bloods, but you don't feel like that. It's because you're probably making a huge amount of reverse T3 that has come along and put the brakes on your thyroid hormone production. And so, you know, stress is a big deal for the thyroid. And, you know, uh, the thyroid goes to the pituitary gland as kind of its little um, pathway. So it goes pituitary, thyroid, and, but also this pituitary gland goes to our adrenals. And so the axis shares the thyroid and our ovaries actually um so you know if the the pituitary gland is really busy sending messages to your adrenal glands to make stress hormones it does so at the expense of making this beautiful thyroid hormone so not only are you getting less thyroid hormone production but now you're also getting a lot of reverse t3 you can see how that picture kind of ends up with a really slow looking thyroid and people will present with okayish looking buds perhaps but if stress is there, it won't be really reflective of what your body's actually getting used. So it's quite quite interesting. Yeah, good question. <laughs> Another reason, because I'm always talking about how we need to nurture ourselves yeah, um, at the, during the menopause, at any stage of menopause, but that's a big example of why, right? I know, and you, you think about the most menopausal woman at the moment, and, you know, we're kind of... I'm in this group, it's so, so much fun. Um, it's just, if you're kind of, you know, 40 with young kids still at home, you still got a full-time job, you're busy, busy, busy. And then, you know, you start adding in the change of hormones with menopause. That concoction alone is pretty stressful. So you can see that most of us are living on kind of adrenaline and cortisol hormones. So actually the impact of that on all our hormones, particularly our thyroid, is, is quite huge so we have to you know I think a lot of us want to just take a pill to kind of help with yeah. the stress there is a we actually have to do not be the yes lady we have to take time for ourselves. and you know I always teach my clients and you'll probably had this in another podcast about pace breathing and breathing in general because it's one of the most incredible tools we have yes. to let our insides know that there's no tiger in the room and that we're okay and it's not really tricking the system, you know. And I th always say to people, it's not like the downward dog yoga pose. You can pull it out in the supermarket. You can pull it out on the phone when people are talking too long, whatever it is. Deep breath. And you're like, 
instantly getting that flow into your parasympathetic nervous system to let you know you're safe. So it's pretty amazing um, tool that we have to help the thyroid and help menopause. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I teach breath work. I love do you breath work. Yeah. Ooh. It's okay, amazing. I need to know about that later. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, um, and can you explain, because underactive thyroid, you know, I always say sluggish thyroid, sluggish body, right? Yeah. Sluggish metabolism. Yeah. Weight gain, oh, which is one of our ladies' biggest yeah. um, challenges. Yeah. I know, and, and to be honest, is, and I'm a nutritionist, and so obviously when I started gaining weight, that wasn't kind of the look that I was aiming for to get clients. <laughs> so it was like, hello. Um, but, you know, with regards to the thyroid, one of the key symptoms for an underactive thyroid is weight gain. Generally, it's all overweight too, kind of face, body. So, you know, certain hormones like insulin, for example, make us gain weight around the middle. With the thyroid, it tends to be all over. Um, but so weight gain is huge. But I have had people who have been diagnosed with hypothyroidism and have no weight gain whatsoever. And oh, actually, on the other side, really? yeah. And I've even had hypothyroid, which is the fast thyroid, mm. who um, have gained weight. So it's not a you know fastidious rule that we have to stick to. But you know, on a whole, most people with an underactive thyroid will gain weight. Um, and then you know, if you were to touch my hands, that so being obviously with someone with hypothyroidism, they're always cold. Like we suffer with the, the you know, an internal temperature being warm. Then you add menopause, you go hot, cold. So much fun. <laughs> I feel like I want to like a complete circus ride all the time. But, um, you know, so cold feeling, particularly hands and feet, just kind of feeling like you're always wearing an extra jersey when everyone else is and it's kind of a key one. Anxiety and depression are a massive um, area with an underactive thyroid and I think the statistics now are around one in six people who are diagnosed with depression is actually an underactive thyroid so if anyone suffers with any mental health I'd definitely be checking their thyroid comprehensively with all those tests we were talking about um, then there is the kind of coarser hair or hair falling out that we can get that last third of the eyebrow that's on the end of your eyebrow there um, that is quite specific to the thyroid and I know a lot of us think we've overplucked in the 80s, <laughs> but it actually can be the thyroid that's caused us to lose that hair there. And um, what's the other one? Skin's kind of getting drier, nails more brittle, um, and oh, and just kind of memory fog. Uh, sorry, yeah, brain fog, memory loss, and um, some of us can struggle with sleep as well. Um, and women who are in those fertile years can find that infertility is an issue as well so it, and i think the thing with thyroid is it's so um, far reaching in its symptoms because most of the cells in our body require thyroid and so when we get low on our production of thyroid hormone our body has to go well who do i give it to do i give it i have to make your heart pump that's pretty important but do i have to make you have a good mood or good energy that's the other one energy i forgot um low energy is big oh yeah yeah fatigue is huge um, so everyone is quite different. If you lined up all our hypothyroid clients, every one of us will present with different symptoms. You know, for me, it was just really weight, whereas somebody else, it may be, um, you know, depression, anxiety, or somebody else, it's insomnia. So symptoms are one way of, you know, getting a head, head start on figuring out whether your thyroid's okay or not, but then definitely follow it up with some good blood testing to, to see. So use all the tools you've got, basically, to kind of see how yours is doing. But if there's... You know, and with that too, just to say, sorry, there are kind of two times in life that I really recommend doing extra testing, blood tests around your thyroid. And one is when you have children, because our thyroid is um, 
quite vulnerable at this time and some of us have children more than once um, so testing your thyroid around this time and then menopause and you know we were touching on that at the beginning of the podcast is that menopause is a big hormonal shift and is um, a time in life when our thyroid can become susceptible to going into an underactive state so it's really important that we check it then um, and I think when you learn about the human body you realize that nothing in the body just hangs out by itself we're all working together and as women we're so complex with our hormonal system because we have the opportunity to make babies which is pretty amazing making human beings in here um, so to be able to do that we have to have all this um, connection with all our hormones working together so when we have a big shift in perimenopause and menopause when we start first losing progesterone and then estrogen it is a big shock to the thyroid and yeah and it takes a bit of adjustment and for some people that can be too much and be thrown into an underactive state so really important time to have a check so do you think that in some instances i'm just trying to craft this in the right way but that a hypoactive thyroid even though it can cross over with perimenopause it's confusing isn't it because it can be indicative perhaps that you are entering perimenopause right? yeah it's kind of like all oh. i think yeah bang on like i always think of um perimenopause as actually a kind of a window of opportunity because it highlights where your body needs some love and so some people may find that memory loss is their biggest thing for example so working on your brain health would be great but if your thyroid was one of the things that starts showing signs of neglect that's <laughs> probably not the best word to use <laughs> but that you know needs some love then you know it may have been sitting there in the background before but then when perimenopause comes it just puts on a big neon light of where in your body you need to to focus your attention and i think you know that's the advantage we have over men really in that we have this ability over this time for our body to give us some signs and clues that it needs some more love and i think when we use perimenopause and that early menopausal time to listen to what our body's saying we can get really good health long term because it really is that kind of um, critical window we've got to turn things around and it's such a cool opportunity and yeah I think you know losing our hormones is never easy but it was awesome to have them in the first place so I kind of think you know you know we have so many protective benefits that we get from having estrogen and progesterone in our body you know that's why women um, don't have so many rates of diabetes for example because it makes us more insulin sensitive while we have her but when we lose her we have a big change we're not used to but at least we had her for 30 years or whatever it was so I think it's sad to see them leave and they definitely make a good entrance out when they go out but it's yeah. like so cool to have at least had them for a while um so yeah I don't know what your question was I think I did a vincarism tangent of somewhere else <laughs> but that that's a very good positive way to think yeah. about it as well I know because it can get quite depressing when you're uh, otherwise <laughs> and I think you know for those of us that have male partners and you're comparing yourself to how little is changing for them I know there are stuff changing for them but you know we go through some massive changes and so a lot of my clients will always reflect on this as a time when they they say they don't feel like they know who they are anymore and they they always saying who is in my body it doesn't feel yeah. like me anymore and you know with the amount of things that are changing you can understand why that happens but it's about listening to that and actually 
learning what we can do to support it so that we can get past the menopausal time and then be in a much better health place. So it is an opportunity. It is. It, it definitely makes us work for it. Yeah. <laughs> so, it's a, and I don't think until you get there, you really appreciate how much of a transition it is. No. You, you can talk mm. all about it and learn all about it, which I did. But until I went through it myself, I was like, it's like anything. I know. Um, yeah. You know. I know. You don't really know what it's like <laughs> until you've been there. Yeah, I know. Now it's quite fascinating I feel like I'm in my own experiment figuring this out <laughs> and you learn you know and our body tells us so often when it's not happy with us you know now when I because I love Whitakers I know I should admit that as a, as a nutritionist but it's my weak point um and I do 70 percent plus yeah mm, most of the time sometimes <laughs> when I'm good I know but when I eat chocolate I will get a hot flush so it's like the body's like no you're not allowed that now and it so it will tell me and a lot of people will say that with wine yeah. If they drink wine, they'll have a night where they don't sleep as well. They'll get more hot flushes and, yeah, yeah they night sweat. And it's like your body's just like, uh-uh, you're not getting away with that anymore. And so we have to be healthy now. I know. <laughs> it's forcing it us. I know. It, it speaks very loudly. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I always call it a good time to get a health warrant of fitness oh, and overall because you just can't get away with it. So with um, your thyroid, if it is underactive, there is a lot you can do in terms of um, beautiful bounty and fresh food. It doesn't all have to be about popping a pill, does it? No, for myself, my journey haven't been medicated. And so um, there's, you know, I'm not saying that's what everyone can achieve, definitely not, but there is so much we can do through food. And, I mean, most of our, our body works on chemical reactions, and those chemical reactions are fed by nutrients. So... You know, it's about not just about the food we eat, but the food we absorb and so good gut health. Um, but, you know, the key is getting good nutrients. And when I look at, you know, I've probably looked at over 2,000 um, women's and men's thyroids now. And when I look at them. Wow. I know. I know. I get so excited. I know. I'm so geeky. To this. But when I look at them, one of the things that's so low all the time is that, that storage form of thyroid hormone. And that's predominantly made of iodine. So if you were not eating a diet high iodine, so that's food from the sea, such as fish, seafood, seaweed, and sea salt, then a lot of us are getting deficient in iodine. And, um, and the thyroid will always take the most out of the body. It hogs it all. And also as women, we need it for our breast tissue. And it's really amazing antioxidants for our breasts. So if our thyroids aren't getting enough of it, then definitely these puppies aren't either. And so when I've looked at all these thousands of bloods, um, there's only been a handful of women that I've, and, and men too um, that I've seen with good levels of th- um, thyrox, uh, sorry, T4. Yeah. So it's, you know, you can, it comes down predominantly to diet lacking in iodine. And you know, iodine used to be in our salt. It was a synthetic version, which wasn't obviously ideal, but now we're pretty much lacking it completely in our diet. And our milk vats in Australia and New Zealand used to be rinsed with iodine. As a disinfectant, yeah, but they ban that and use hard chemicals now, of course. Uh, So our dairy products used to have a lot of iodine in them as a result. So we're now not eating fish every day or seaweed or sea, you know, you couldn't get enough through sea salt, it'd be nice, but no. Um, So we're kind of, yeah, needing to think about ways of doing that. I personally love seaweed chips, you know, making them yourself. Yeah, I I love Oh, so Mm. good. They take like five minutes to make them. 
have a video on my website, on my Facebook page, I think, um, in my dressing gown, which is embarrassing to me. <laughs> like, I'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah, okay. Yeah. Oh, God, my dressing gown. Yeah. <laughs> it might not be. It might be one where I'm dressed for a change. <laughs> but, yeah, so iodine is key for the thyroid and is selenium. There's lots of nutrients that are important, but the two that Brazil I... Nut. Brazil nut. Brazil yeah. I always suggest... And I try and do it myself. Having yeah. a Brazil nut, Brazil nut every day. Yeah, a couple of Brazil nuts a day couple. would be good. Yeah, they range kind of in how much iodine, uh, sorry, how much selenium is in each of them, but a couple of days kind of generalised, okay. kind of going to get you there. So I know, and then you know, but it's also thinking about the food that you've got. You're eating is kind of majority whole food because you're eating a lot of inflammatory foods like sugars and refined oils, etc then that puts a lot of um, stress on the body and inflammation on the body. And because the thyroid is designed to sense stress, whenever we have a lot of inflammatory foods in our diet, it will sense cell danger, basically, and our thyroid won't be able to be utilised. Um, so, yeah, so it's, not, it's, so it's complex, the thyroid. Um, there's a book called The Thyroid Debacle. It's really interesting, and it talks oh. about just because your thyroid's producing thyroid hormone, does it actually mean your cells are using it? And it comes down to your body feeling like it's safe, so that stress we're talking about, but also making sure that the food we're eating in general is, you know, a highly um, anti-inflammatory diet, so lots of fruits, veggies, good protein choices, etc. So, so, I mean, it's all the basics we all know, just sometimes. We all do know them. I know, well, just have to remember all the time. But hey, sometimes yeah. you need a nudge, don't you think? Yeah. Oh, my God, yeah. And can we um, talk about, listen to my voice, um, yeah. it's croaking a bit, but... Um, can we talk, because I know you have this incredible, <laughs> abundant garden which with amazing things in it. Oh, I know. Like saffron, which you brought me some, thank you. Um, I love my hibiscus. garden. Oh, amazing. But I think you have a very, very strong message there too, don't you, about yeah. the soil? I know, I'm, I'm always telling people they need to get dirty. So they need to like get into the garden. And it, it just could be somewhere, but just, you know, the food we have available to us now, unfortunately, is so nutrient deficient because I think I was reading something not so long ago where if um, we'd have to eat eight oranges today to get the vitamin C that our grandmothers would have had to get. So that's, yeah. So how we grow our food and how our soil is now so depleted that to get enough nutrients purely from food that we buy is pretty hard. So... I always think that if we can grow as many things as possible in a healthy style of growing, um, then um, we can get heaps more nutrients out of our food. So and I think you know the shame too that I see a lot now is when we think about buying organic food, we think we're going to be getting a whole lot of nutrients in that. But you can grow food organically with just an NPK fertilizer, nitrogen, potassium, and phosphorus. So we need like 70 plus trace minerals in our food. So you can still grow food organically and be healthier because of the no chemicals, but still is deficient in nutrients. So the best way is doing it yourself. And it can, you know, when I started, it was hit and miss with what worked and what didn't. It's just like learn as you go. And it's just the main thing is give good soil love. And once that happens, anything will grow. It's amazing. So I love it. I know. I spend, that's my happy time out place. <laughs> God, it's just incredible to see the abundance on Instagram, people, follow Zinka on Instagram. <laughs> I'll put a link in the show notes as well. But it is amazing. But that also brings me to, um, it used to be you are what you eat. Yeah. Now it's you are what you absorb, right? Because yeah. that can be one reason. But also in midlife, our stomach acid 
um, reduces, doesn't it? Yeah. And also, so many people have issues with their gut health now, right? Oh so God. they're not absorbing the nutrients, and that's a lot of our ladies in our mm. community, it will be, right? Oh, I'd say that my two biggest complaints would be gut and fatigue, and most, sometimes the fatigue is driven from the gut. So gut health is, is deteriorated quite a lot over the last, even since I've been in practice, it's amazing to see the changes, but when we get to around 40, our stomach acid does produce a lot, and so as a result of that, we're not breaking down our food as well and absorbing our nutrients. So, um, and one of the key things about that is um, you're making sure you have good levels of B12 and zinc because those are really important for um, stomach acid. But stress decreases that as well. Um, but good gut health, I think I could talk a little. Yeah. I always get told off for talking about poo. I mean, that's a big, big <laughs> conversation. I know, too, but I think most people don't know that they don't have good gut health. So, yeah, you've got to have a good poo every day. And if it's every 20, uh, 48 hours, it's too long. You know, it, So everyone should know their poo, and every morning you should assess it. <laughs> I love I love a good poo chat, but you probably don't want to talk about that now. But I think, you know, that is our sign of our body is healthy when we see that in the morning or whenever time of day it is for you. But, you know, a lot of people don't have good gut health. And, you know, some of our thyroid hormone, I think it's around about 20% of it, gets activated in the gut. So having good gut health is important for good thyroid hormone too. So, yeah, essential. And, yeah, listen to the signs your body's giving you. It may not be presenting in the gut. It could be feeling sleepy in the afternoon. It could be headaches. It could be even mood issues. Um, other things that you may not think of are related to your gut. So super important. Love the gut. So would you recommend um, fermented foods for that? Because some people are histamine intolerant, right? So yeah. they can't... Yeah, so some fermented foods. Yeah, and a lot of people, even people who have SIBO, small intestinal bacterial overgrowth, they can react to a lot of the fermented foods because they are producing a lot of gas. But on the whole, for most people, um, I'd start really slowly if you haven't had them before and build up. So having, for example, a teaspoon of sauerkraut with your lunch and then um, moving all the way up to kind of a tablespoon. I now have like half a cup. Oh, so wow. crap with my two meals a day. I love it. But I use a brand wild fermentary. I'm totally plugging them because they're amazing. I'm not associated anyway, but I love what their food. The wild fermentary. They're in oh, New Zealand. Okay. Cut me a, a lovely lady runs it. But her sauerkrauts, because sometimes they can taste a little bit like old socks. Um, so hers just tastes yes. delicious. Like they've got fiery ones, lemon verbena ones, also good. Uh, so if you're new to fermented food, they're a good way. But you know, like yogurts are great. Miso is awesome. And at the moment, I'm making turmeric sodas that are fermented. Yum. You can ferment ginger in a, in a soda. Can like I put a, that link in the show? Yeah, yeah. And what about gherkins and olives and things like that? But are they fermented? Are they classified as a ferment, fermented uh, Probably. It depends on how they were done. If you can ferment, right. most pickles are a, a pickle made out of um, vinegar and sugar, but if you get a relish that's been fermented, I ferment relishes, but you wouldn't probably buy them on the market. You have to make them yourself. Okay. Um, but you can do that, and they taste delicious. You can even make salsas fermented. You just let them sit for a few days mm. with all the herbs that and coriander. Oh, so good. Uh, I've tried to make sauerkraut myself, though, and it's always a major fail. And it's actually technically very simple. I know, but I'm like you with sauerkraut. I haven't actually mastered sauerkraut myself very well. I've made a couple of batches, but they're never as good as, that's why I buy the sauerkraut. <laughs> but, just like, but other ferments, I find them much easier. But the sauerkraut, I think it's because it's just cabbage. To get cabbage to taste good at the other end and not get it mouldy with it not being attentive, 
is actually quite difficult uh, for me. I think other people have mastered it. My brother's a pro at this, and so really? I, yeah, I know I leave him in that charge too. I cannot, I can't conquer that or coconut yoga. Yeah, that, oh, I haven't made that for ages actually. That's a goodie too. You reminded me about that. <laughs> I know you can add kind of probiotic capsules to coconut mm. yogurt to kind of help it along. But um, I know, but I think the more diverse range of fermented foods definitely should be having them in most meals. Um, and we've, it's a traditional way of storing our food, and we've kind of lost touch with it. But it's because kind of most traditions do have a fermented. Yeah. Um, staple don't they? I think they all do like yeah they would I think you kind of have to and I think um particularly over winter when we need a lot more um good immune health we need really good gut bacteria to help that and so fermented foods are an amazing way of getting that done I love it um I, you get to the point where you can't survive without having it like you do to that tangy taste I love it yeah mm -hmm. uh, I know maybe I'm addicted to all food actually <laughs> a bit of food obsessed <laughs> Yeah, yeah, but you make some wonderful things. So that's fantastic. So can we? Um, I have some. I said to you they were going to be like quick questions, but no subject in nutrition or menopause is a quick subject, is it? Especially with me answering them, I'm like, I, I can't answer things with one word answers, one sentence answers. I'm terrible, but I'll try. But I'm a bit the same, but. So we'll call them quick, but we'll say it's a lot more than one sentence. So with relation to women and menopause, yeah. shall I go through them one by one or give them to you all at once? Give me one by one because then I'll forget. Okay. Floating. <laughs> floating. Yeah, so a lot of women develop bloating. Um, and again, it comes down to not having good stomach acid to, I'm pointing to my throat, not sure why, um, to my stomach, um, is a lot of women don't have good um, stomach acid, which can then mean that our food bro doesn't break down as well and it will start fermenting in our, in our digestive system. But also um, a lot of us aren't taking time to chew our food and kind of break it down. Because when we chew our food, that produces a lot of saliva. And that will be kind of like the messenger that goes to the, the stomach and says, hey, make some stomach acid for me. And so a lot of us are just kind of eating at our desk, oh, no, like that, <laughs> stuffing our face. But So if we could actually take the time to chew our food, it would be helpful. But also bloating um, can come from a lot of food intolerances can cause bloating. So kind of thinking about um, ones that may not be working for you. A lot of women struggle with gluten, well, not just women, men and women, um, and there's a one for um, bloating so yeah and it's about looking through all your foods and kind of doing some eliminations about which ones maybe driving it up um, but yeah get your good chewing going on good, good stomach acid maybe with some apple cider vinegar with your meals and then think about whether there's any foods that you may not be working with as a quick start there's a lot of other reasons but <laughs> you'll you want to stay on this uh, video then I'll be short yeah <laughs> um yeah I know this, yeah. you can there's I know, lot, I could do an hour just on that. But um, when you, it just triggered me another one. Oh, yeah. Um, but when you were talking about food intolerance and sensitivities, they can increase too in midlife, can't they? And one that can be quite problematic, in my experience, is dairy because uh, the enzyme that we use to Lactose. process it isn't as yeah. is efficient. Yeah. You, do you see that? Quite I often? do. And it's, I haven't actually worked out the connection of why this is happening, but I see kind of the dairy, the gluten, and histamine 
and you'll probably know the histamine connection, but high estrogen levels, which happen in perimenopause, actually drives up high histamine levels in our body. Oh, I didn't know that. Oh, really? Yeah, and yeah. it's a bit of a feedback system too because high histamine increases estrogen. So it kind of goes round and round. So then when we have foods that contain histamine, which are generally healthy, like spinach and, mm. and nuts and seeds and things, um, they can then be too much. And, can and high histamine in the body causes anxiety because it's a stimulatory, stimulating um, neurotransmitter as well. So a lot of women are having too much histamine and it causes the itchy skin. Um, as well as the dry skin that we get at that stage can cause that. So, Which yeah. is crazy, man. Yeah. But in terms of the dairy, I definitely see an increase. I don't know why. Um, and I'm a dairy farmer's daughter, so I hate telling people. Yeah. <laughs> I knew you wouldn't like me asking I know. it. <laughs> I know, but I think you know, a lot of people don't tolerate dairy, and I think you have to be honest with the symptoms the body may be expressing. So if you're getting that nasal drip, if you're humming <clears throat> all the time, or have a cough, or you've got looser stools, sometimes it can cause constipation too, though. But I find predominantly it says looser stools and go mm, let's start with dairy and when you do an elimination particularly for dairy and gluten you have to do it at least for three weeks because it takes that long to clear it out so if you just do a few days and go I don't notice any difference it's not long enough you have to go for much longer to know for sure that it isn't but you know dairy is all the good things in life cheese chocolate <laughs> so good luck um, but yeah but no but there it, once you kind of feel better it's, it's always easier to take those foods out when you start to notice a big difference so yeah it's a good one. It's amazing. Like it. People don't like hearing it. No. Um, cravings. Me. Yeah, so cravings. Oh, well, that's a biggie. Um, yeah. So so cravings can, you know, I suffer those as well. Um, <laughs> and it's, you know, sometimes cravings can just be a nutrient deficiency. So, for example, when we're craving chocolate, you know, usually PMS, for example, um, we're craving a lot of chocolate. And the reason, one of the reasons is it's, it's high in magnesium um, and also carbohydrates are needed to produce progesterone in, in a way too. So we crave a lot of, um, oh, sorry, to make serotonin. We need um, carbohydrates for that and we get low in serotonin when we get low in um, our hormones. So we can crave foods just because we, we actually need them in terms of what they may provide for us in nutrients. So that is one thing. And also we can't deny that sometimes we just start habits that we you know have had so long that we start to get used to having that food regularly that we want it we want it and I think sugar is one of the hardest ones to remove and it's you know they say it's harder than heroin and it is because you don't pull up to the service station and have a you know an injection of heroin sitting there <laughs> you've got like 50,000 displays of pretty chocolate to look at you it's everywhere and I think in our cultures we've kind of had people go why well, just once you can have it and yeah you can but it's not just this once, it's kind of constant. So we, you know, we get into habits of things as well. So, you know, I always look at getting, in, obviously I'm biased because I'm a nutritionist, but I always think get your nutrients up and then see what your body's still craving. Yeah. And that makes a big difference. Mm. See, that's interesting too. And there's insulin. I know we don't have time to talk about that today, but there's that. Oh, yeah, with the blood sugar management, insulin. Yeah, mm -hmm. totally. Um, and cholesterol, because oh. cholesterol, this is a question from one of our members in the yeah. Facebook group 40 plus ageless goddesses she wanted to know um, how cholesterol is, infe is infected affected in menopause oh great question and it's huge like I can look at women's blood because I have clients for, for some time now and they can see their bloods before menopause and then menopause and they're like two different people one of the things that goes up is cholesterol and so 
just like when you go through puberty and we have all these new genes switching on for that stage of life for breast development for periods happening etc when we go through menopause we have the same thing it's kind of like second puberty in a way in that we have all these genes switching on and off um, and one of the ones is promotion of inflammation basically in our body and it drives up cholesterol and it drives up our blood sugars so you know, with this, we can often see that a woman who had perfectly healthy cholesterol all their life go to menopause and then all of a sudden their LDL, which is nicknamed the bad cholesterol, just goes woof up in the air. Um, I've done a whole podcast on cholesterol because, you know, our measurements that we use for cholesterol in our bloods probably aren't telling us enough of the picture. So do listen to that one if you're interested in your cholesterol. But the biggest factor we can do to reduce cholesterol when we get to this age is reduce our blood sugars. So sugars are the biggest driver of cholesterol. We've been kind of been told in our life prior that fat drives up, um, saturated fat drives up our cholesterol, but it's only a, a very small amount and it's actually blood sugars that will drive up our cholesterol. So getting those managed is the biggest key to getting your cholesterol down. And, you know, obviously... When you look at it, there's other options like hormone replacement therapy and things like that can help with managing our cardiovascular health in general as well. So there's other tools, but it's definitely a thing. It's definitely. <laughs> so I think that's sometimes more reliable than using the FSH follicle-stimulating hormone test to test for perimenopause is just check someone's cholesterol out and that's going to be like, yep, you're there. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And yeah, no, it's amazing. It's amazing, isn't it? Yeah, I know. It's incredible. Like so many things change in that time. It's a massive And shift. that whole blood sugars thing, but I mean, that is a huge subject. Yeah, oh, I know. But, um, yeah. So have I worn you out? No, I know you're, you're. I know you're good. Whew, I feel like I've been on test. <laughs> I'm like, have I passed? Oh, no. no, thank you. Thank you so much for coming and sharing your oh, I love knowledge it. and you. expertise with us. We're gonna have to have another one of these. <laughs> Would yeah. you be into that? Oh, totally. I'm like any excuse to have a chat. Like I just get. Like I honestly always feel like I have to pay people for, to listen to me because I'm like anywhere I get an opportunity to chat, I love it. So um, good. There's so much. I think when you start talking about health, there's just so many areas that you can go into. I think so, and it's yeah. fascinating. And I love that we live in a wellness re re yeah. wellness revolution right now. Oh, I know. It's so good. And then just have the focus on actually the stage of life we're at as well and what we can do to help in all the areas. Because it's not just about hormones. It's like things you were saying, your cholesterol, your blood sugars, your moods, your energy. Mm. It's just like looking at all these areas. and Big picture. Yeah. But there's heaps you can do. Like I think that's the exciting bit. We don't have to be stuck I here. know. That's the yeah. wonderful thing. There's yeah. heaps of support. Oh, yeah. And the more knowledge we get the better off we are yeah. and we can manage this whole menopausal journey too. Yeah. Okay? And I'm going to put it all in the show notes and things, but let's yeah. tell people where they can find you. Yeah, so I've got a website, vinka.co.nz, um, V-I-N-K-A. Um, Easy. I know. Yeah. <laughs> um, so that, and then on that I've got my, I've got some podcasts, lots of recipes, and I've got my Facebook and Insta pages as well, um, which is Vinka Nutrition. So, yeah. I know, so it's exciting because I share all my kind of things I'm learning as I go from garden to health to nutrition to hormones and yeah, where I'm speaking and what I'm doing. So, Which you. is cool. Yeah. And that garden. I know, I'm going to do more garden tours one day. That's my next project. <laughs> I love them. Yeah, so that's no, good. That's fantastic. Yeah. Thanks so much. No, thank you. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode. If you did, please share it and rate it because it helps other women join the conversation. If you'd like to learn more about Menome, check us out at menome.co.nz. Mm -hmm.